0: But I think for a lot of us, when we hear somebody share their faith that way, not with a bunch of you need to do this, but people who share, this is my story, and this is what happened to me. I I think it, it helps us start to examine what do we want our own spiritual life to look like. And I think that's really important because I think that is at the basic DNA of our faith. What do we want our spiritual life to look like? I'm going to share this morning, and I'm talking to believers. If you're in the room and you're not sure what you believe, stick around. We've got stuff for you too. But what I'm, what I'm talking about this morning, I am challenging those of us who are very certain that when we die, we are going to stand in front of God, and when he says, why should I let you into heaven? And your answer is going to say, because of the bloodshed on Calvary. Because of the blood that Christ said when he got in line for my punishment. When he took my punishment for me, my debt has been paid by him. That's why you should let me into heaven. Not because of me, but because of what Christ did for me. So those of us that would give that answer, that is what we're looking at this morning. I'm going to start... In Matthew chapter 25 the parable of the ten virgins and I'm sure that that you have heard this but follow along I think Ben's gonna have it up on the up on the screen Jesus Jesus was teaching and he said at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom five of them were foolish and five were wise When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, Here comes the groom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, open up for us. He replied, Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Now, I think this, this parable, what goes on in Matthew 25, I think is very important. Let me ask you, what would you do if you knew you had just one week left before you died? What would you do? Would it involve a favorite meal? Maybe visiting a, a favorite place, a cherished place? I think for most of us, it would involve family, some loved ones, what would you want some of the last things that you were going to say? What would you want those things to be? Would you want to pass on some advice or some wisdom? Maybe talk to your, to your children about requests for their future, what you would like for, for them to do. This, this sermon that Jesus is, is teaching right now in Matthew 25 takes place right before preparations began for the Last Supper which lead into the Easter story. Jesus knew that his days, his hours were numbered at this point. And these are the things that he was sharing. I think that adds a little bit of weight to them. If we know that this is some of his last teaching, and this is what he chose to, to do with it, to do with that time. And he used a story that the culture at that time could really connect to. The, the virgins in the story, this refers to the, to the wedding party, to the bride's wedding party, to the young women that were with the bride. Now, culturally, at that time, when a, a couple had decided to marry, what were the, the groom would make arrangements with her father, with her family. He would give them gifts. They would set a wedding date and expectation, usually about a year away. The young woman would begin to wear a veil all of the time everywhere to signify that she was not yet married but engaged. And because so many people would come to the wedding and travel from so far away, because of the big days-long celebration that would go into that, because of all of the food that had to be prepared and gifts had to be prepared, they couldn't just go to Walmart and buy something off of the registry, they had to make things for the gifts. So because of all that, usually they knew what day the wedding was going to happen or was going to start, but they didn't really know the exact time. So what would happen is the bride would be waiting at her house with the young women that were in the wedding party, and they had no idea what time the groom was going to show up. Because it would depend upon the preparations for the wedding. When everything was ready, the groom and the young men in the wedding party with him would go to the bride's house. And they would call out and the bride would come out. And the bride and the groom and their wedding party would then walk to the groom's house where the wedding was going to be. And sometimes this would be just a couple of blocks. Sometimes it would be several miles. And because that trip would sometimes happen at night, because they had no idea what time the groom was going to show up, they would have to bring lamps. They would have to bring light. Otherwise, they'd be walking in the dark. Culturally, everybody hearing this story could very much relate to it. Everybody had been to a wedding. Those that were married remembered when, when that had happened for them, Those that weren't married had seen it happen with neighbors, with family. They understood, and they understood this concept of waiting for the groom to arrive, and you don't know exactly when the groom is going to show up. And they understood this idea that if he shows up after dark, and you didn't bring any oil for your lamp, the journey is now more difficult. Because now it has to occur without enough light. So the culture, they really understood this story. If Jesus was sharing this now, about five who were prepared and five weren't, he'd probably tell a story about people forgetting to bring their phone chargers with them. He might tell a story about somebody forgetting to pay the cable bill or forgetting to pay the electric bill. He'd find a way to make it relatable to us because we don't do weddings like that anymore. So we don't really relate to that story the way they did. But in that time, everybody got it. Everybody understood what he was saying. He's talking about the five who were prepared and the five foolish ones. And the five foolish ones, they weren't sinful. They weren't evil. They weren't selfish. In fact, they were just like the five young women that were prepared, except they didn't bring any extra oil with them. They wanted to be prepared, Because when they heard that the groom was coming, they began to ask, hey, can you share some of your oil with me? I don't have enough. They wanted to be prepared. And those that that had enough said, if we share with you, we won't have enough. So why don't you go and you buy some? So when they left to buy some, that's when the groom shows up. And I think Christianity often divides into two camps. Those that are prepared, and those that are preparing to be prepared. Which camp do you find yourself in this morning? One of the greatest disasters in history took place because of lack of preparation. In the year 1271, Niccolo and Matteo Polo, the father and uncle of Marco Polo, were visiting the Kubla Khan. Kubla Khan at that time was a world ruler. He ruled all of China, all of India, and most of the East. As they visited with him, he became fascinated by the story of Jesus. Asked so many questions about Christianity. As he began to believe in the Christ story, he said to them, I want you to go to your high priest and tell him on my behalf to send me 100 men skilled in your religion. I want to be baptized. And once I am baptized, I want all of my barons to understand and be baptized as well. And then all of the great men who work for each of my barons will become baptized. And then their subjects will receive instruction in the faith and they will become baptized. We will soon have more Christians in this part of the world than you have in your part of the world. So Niccolo and Matteo Polo they returned home, and they were they were so excited about this, this great thing that was about to happen. And they went to the highest Christian authorities, and they requested 100 missionaries. And the response of church leadership was, are we sure those barbarians deserve to hear the gospel? And church leadership began to talk, and they began to debate, and they began to meet, and And they began to go back and forth. Should we send missionaries? Maybe we shouldn't send any. Maybe we should send a lot. Maybe we should send a few. Maybe we could do a food drive instead. What could we do? And they began to talk about it. And after 30 years, and if you have ever been involved in anything with church meetings, you know 30 years might not be a stretch as far as how long it sometimes takes to get things done after 30 years of debate and discussion about who to send and how many to send and whether or not they should send, they finally decided to send three missionaries to the Kublai Khan. But when they got there, they discovered that they had arrived too late because a few years after the Polos had left to go get the missionaries... Buddhist monks had shown up and began to share their faith with a country that was hungry for something to believe in. Buddhist monks converted most of the empire from China, the Middle East, all the way into Europe to Buddhism. The opportunity to share Christ was missed. Not because people didn't believe, but because those that believed were preparing to get ready and debating what that was going to look like. And we can divide ourselves into those two camps, those who are ready, those who are getting ready, those that brought extra oil and those that didn't think ahead, those that feel a sense of urgency, some sort of a deadline, and then those who don't. Now, I'm not a doom and gloom sort of a, sort of a pastor, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about end times. Twenty-some years ago, there were a bunch of books left behind. And I think they even made some movies about it. And it was this big thing kind of in in Christian culture. When is the rapture going to happen? When is is Jesus going to come back? When is that going to happen? And I've never really spent a lot of time worrying about that. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells the apostles that the angels have no idea when that's going to happen. And even the Son of God doesn't know when that's going to happen. So I've always taken great comfort in the idea, if Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back, there's no way that Mark Southam in Keystone Heights is going to figure it out. So I don't have to spend any time worrying about it. I know because I read my Bible. I know how I'm supposed to be acting when that happens. I just don't need to be spending any time worrying about when it's going to happen so I don't I'm not this doom and gloom guy I don't kind of preach and teach and and feel like we need to be braced for end times all the time but I am aware that he could come back at any time that is a deadline that Christianity is looking at it could be a thousand years from now it could be right after lunch today we've got that deadline we just don't know when it's going to be but we've all got other deadlines don't we I mean everybody in this room is going to die a thousand years from now, we'll all be long gone. A hundred years from now, most of us will be long gone. Some of the children's ministry will be hanging on. But most of the rest of us will be long gone from here. So we have this deadline. And with that deadline, all those deadlines, we should kind of have this, this sense of urgency. Every one of us has known somebody who's died. Every one of us have had coworkers that have gotten new jobs and they've they've kind of moved on. Every one of us has had last final conversations with somebody who's who's moving on, who's moving away. All of us see these deadlines come in and out of our lives often. Do we have a sense of urgency about that? Because every day we're losing opportunities to make connections with people. Connections to share our faith. You know, I really believe that we need to, to, to stop being like Brother Scott was. And I say that because I think that's the advice he would give you. Don't, don't do what he did. Do it the easy way instead. But I think a lot of us have maybe not that exact story, but a lot of us kind of have that long period of our life where we kind of feel like God's out there, and we want to be all about God in our life, but we also want to be all about fun we don't want to give up all of that stuff. We don't really want to make that, that godly commitment just yet. You know, like one thing that most pastors are sick about hearing is about that magical someday. Because I encounter people all the time that have that someday date that they're going to get serious about God. When I'm done with school, once I graduate, now nah, i get serious about God, Mark. When I'm done with college, college is hard, but when I'm done with college, start my life, I'm going to get serious about God. Well, you know what? i I got a lot of stuff going on right now. When I get engaged, that's when I'll be starting my life, and that's when I'm going to get serious about God. You know, I'm engaged right now, and we're really busy, but when we get married, we'll both get serious about God together. When we have children, we're going to start coming to church. When we have kids. Well, now we got some kids and, and it's just so hard to get them up and get them to church and, and it's just such a such a pain. So we're going to wait till the kids are potty trained or we're going to wait till they're all in school. Then it'll be easier then we're going to get serious. Well, the kids are in school and they got soccer and they got scouts and they got music lessons and they got this and they got that. We are going to wait until the soccer season ends. Then we're going to get serious about our faith soon as soccer season's over. Well, as soon as football season is over. As soon as the school year is over with. June 1st. We're going to get really serious about God. June 1st. As soon as I get that promotion at work, things will, things will settle down. It'll stop being so crazy. We'll have a little bit, little bit more money, a little bit more breathing room. Then we'll get serious about God. When the kids get in junior high, when the kids get in high school, then we'll get serious. When the kids start to drive, we won't have to be Ubering them all over. Clay County, for activities, then we're going to get serious about God. When the kids start college, they'll be out of the house and life will finally be quiet. We'll get serious about God. We know what we need to do, and we have every intention of doing it, but someday is when we are going to start it. Yet God has given us this commandment to go into all the world. And he didn't say, go into all the world as soon as the soccer season's over with. He didn't say, go into all the world once you get that promotion at work. He didn't say, go into all the world once you get engaged or once you get married or once your first grandchild arrives. Go into all the world without any other explanations, without any other expectations. He didn't say, show up on Sunday Sunday. And encourage your pastor to go into all the world. He didn't say, keep reminding your deacons that they ought to be going into all the world. You are supposed to be going into all the world. If we believe we are supposed to be sharing our faith, and we've got to develop a sense of urgency in this area because I don't think that idea is new to anybody in this room. I think everybody knows we're supposed to be sharing our faith we don't always have this sense of urgency about it who have you shared your faith with this week who have you given your testimony to and your testimony doesn't need to be a sermon scott you did an amazing job by the way i mean i just i was sitting there thinking we're we're having church we don't even need me just all the ushers up and and take the offering as soon as brother scott's done that was so good our testimonies don't have to be this polished thing he had some notes that he was that he was guiding along with you don't have to get your testimony down into notes it doesn't have to be polished you don't have to be a professional speaker you don't have to go to school to learn how to give your testimony you just have to be able to share what your life used to be like, what happened when you met Jesus, and how he's changed your life and what your life is like now. That's it. That's your testimony. It can take 8, 9, 10 minutes like Brother Scott did. It could take 90 seconds. It could take two hours, depending upon your relationship with the person and how much detail you want to go into. Because I have heard Scott share some of the scarier parts of his story in depth at Celebrate Recovery, with men that are hurting. And trust me, it reached them. It doesn't have to be polished. It just has to be you. It just has to be real. Who have you shared your faith with? And I don't mean necessarily telling them your testimony, sharing your, your memorized Bible verses. But what about the gifts that you have? What about the blessings in your life? How do you share those with the world around you? Are you compassionate to people? Do you use your sense of humor to cheer people up, to encourage people? Do you take opportunities to be kind to people? Do you look at your pain as a blessing? There are people in this room right now who have gone through unimaginable pain in their personal lives. Physical pain, emotional pain, trauma that would, that would bring most of us to our knees in tears. And I'm not making light of that, but if you can bring your faith to a point where you can see that as a blessing, not because you're glad it happened... But because, then you can use it as I have seen Scott do, as I have seen our pastor do, as I have seen others of you do. You can use that pain to connect with the hurting world around us and share your faith that way. And we kind of chuckle a little bit when we think of, of people who hear a testimony and think, you know, if God can love a screw-up like that, he can love a screw-up like me. But how serious is that? That you can use the hurt you have in your life to make somebody say, if that guy can connect to God in his pain, maybe I can do it in mine. If she can find faith through that, I can find faith through mine. many of us aren't sharing our faith because we've got the first part of that testimony down. We know what life was like before we met Jesus, and we know what happened when we met him, but what's happened since then, that's where we're stuck because we're kind of waiting to get ready. We're there waiting on the groom, but we didn't bring any oil because we didn't really plan ahead. We're not quite ready yet. We have every intention of getting ready, But we're not there yet. Right after the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus shared the parable of the the talents. Rich guy is getting ready to leave on a journey. And he calls three people in. And and to the first one, it says he gives five talents. And says, I'm going to be gone. Take these and use them. To the next guy, he gives two. He says, I'm going to be gone. Take these and use them. To the last guy, he gives one talent. I'm going to be gone for a while. Take this and use it. And the first guy goes and he takes the five talents. and, And it doesn't necessarily tell us what the talents are. We assume that it's some sort of money. It's some sort of a financial thing. But he doesn't really explain exactly what they are or what the guy did with it. But the first guy used it. He took that money. He took that gift. He took what that guy gave him. He went and he took a college class and he went and he bought a suit. And then he went, and he got himself a job. And when the guy comes back, he says, hey, I took what you gave me, and I bought a nice suit, and I took a college class, and I learned some stuff, and then I went, and I got a job, and I've taken what you've given me, and I'm starting to pile up paychecks on top of it. And the guy says, you know what, that's great. You've taken what I've given you, and you've used it to better yourself and to better the world around you. Well done. And the next guy shows up, and he says, hey, you gave me some money, and, and I got my car tuned up, and I got rid of that crummy job that I had that I hated walking to every day, but I got my car tuned up, and now I can drive into Gainesville every day, and I got this better job that I really enjoy, and it pays a little bit more. And the guy says, you know, good job. You took what I gave you, and you kind of you invested it. You did well with it. And the third guy says, I took what you gave me, And I buried it in the yard so nobody else could get it. I kept it hidden. Kept it to myself. And the guy says, well, give it back to me. I'm giving it to the first guy. And you can get out of here. How many of us are in that position? God has given you things in your life. And you're either using them for him. You've got it buried, and you're just holding on to it for later. Because I'm really going to get involved in the food pantry someday. I'm going to go upstairs, and I'm going to work with that children's ministry someday. If, you, I mean, if you're waiting for them to calm down a little bit, that's not going to happen. And you can hear them right now. I'm going to work with teenagers someday. Someday. We're going to help people someday. But what if someday is today? Have you shared your faith this week? Maybe not even with words. But have you shared the gospel with how you live, with how you interact with others, with the way you treat people? Or are you still getting ready to do that? Are you ready to take your faith into that next step? On your connection card, there's a spot for next steps. And we've been encouraging you guys for for a couple of months now, several months really, to write down your own next step, what you feel God is prompting you to do. Well, I'm going to challenge you guys this morning. If you feel like you are ready to stop getting ready Write that down on your next step. And I promise you, I'm not going to come find you. I'm not going to tackle you on Wednesday night and say, well, you wrote it down. What did you do? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to text you. I'm not going to bother you about it. But what I am going to do is I am going to start praying tomorrow morning for God to put opportunities in your life. For you to move to that next step. For you to start sharing your faith for you to start working on your testimony. Maybe you get your testimony polished and you can come up here like Brother Scott and share it with all of us. Or maybe you just kind of know what your story is and you're ready to share it with a coworker or with a neighbor. We've got this chair up here on the platform and this empty chair is going to sit up here for the duration of this series. Now this chair is meant to represent All of the empty chairs around you right now. This chair is supposed to represent that empty chair at your lunch table, the empty chair at our Bible studies, the empty chair at our fellowship gatherings, the the empty spot where a non believer could be sitting, but they're not because we haven't invited them. Are we ready to start filling up this chair? Are we ready to start inviting people? And, and you know that's so hard. If you're an introvert, so hard to just like walk up to a neighbor, would you like to come to church with me? But Easter's coming. I mean, if there's one time of the year that a non-believer will humor you and go to church, it's Easter. And if you are an introvert and it's kind of hard, and start inviting them for Easter now, when it's still a bunch of weeks away. Because there's not one person in this room that hasn't committed to something that they didn't want to do because it was a bunch, oh yeah, I'll do it. It's a lot of weeks away. Yeah, sure, I'll go with you. When it gets a little closer, you're kind of, why did I commit to that? I don't really want to do that. But Once you're committed, you're kind of on the hook. Who are you inviting? Who are you going to invite for Easter? Who are you going to invite to come to Bible study? Who are you going to invite to come to Wednesday night? Who are you going to invite to join you for lunch at your house? Who is the non-believer that you know who ought to be sitting with us this morning? Who is the non-believer that you could bring and expose to the gospel? If you weren't here on Friday night, you missed a great time. Pastor David was here, and we just, well, we just had a solid hour, maybe a little bit more of worship. So great, so encouraging. I don't know what your life is like, but the week that I had last week, I didn't want to do anything Friday night but go home and hide. And I got here, and I got so encouraged and so lifted up. We had several people in this church on Friday night who gave their lives to Christ. But we had a lot of empty chairs here on Friday night, too. Who do you know that could have been here? Who do you know that you need to start inviting? Who do you know you need to start praying for? You know, I want to close this, this story that I've, I've heard so many times in my life, and I love it. It's about this guy called the Great Blondini. This is years and years ago, before the Internet, before television, before movies. The great Blondini was an acrobat, and he made his living. He would just walk from town to town and put on these, these athletic shows, doing tricks. And the crowd would gather, and they'd watch him, and they'd give him money, and he, would just, he was a little bit of a show-off, and he just—he loved the, the crowd's attention. And that's what he would do, and he would do that every day. crowd would show up, and they'd, they'd pay him, and he'd do all this weird stuff. And then when, the, when the, everybody had seen him and everybody was kind of tired of him, he would move on to the next town and start over again. And he found himself up near Niagara Falls one time. And he's starting to put on this, this, this show, and he's doing all these acrobatic tricks. And it's a really big crowd because it's kind of a tourist area. There's a lot of people there, and people are cheering, and people are clapping, and people are throwing money at him. And he likes the attention, and he loves the money. And he, he's thinking, I've got to keep this going. I can't lose this momentum. I've got to keep this show going. What can I do? And there was a construction site nearby. They were building something. So he went and he got some bricks and he juggled some bricks. And then he's, he's, he's playing with the wood and he's doing all these crazy acrobatic tricks. And they're right near the falls. And right when he's all out of ideas, he thinks, I'm going to get some of that rope and he gets a couple of guys to string some rope over part of the falls, and he gets it on the rope, and he walks back and forth across the rope, way up over the falls, and the crowd is cheering and yelling. And after he's done that, he's thinking, okay, they, they saw that. What else can I do? I don't want them to leave. So he gets one of the wheelbarrows, and he pushes that back and forth across the rope, and the crowd's going berserk. And then he puts some, some like, bricks into the wheelbarrow so it's really hard to balance and he pushes that back and forth and the crowd is yelling and cheering and and he's thinking what can I do I need one more thing and so he gets the crowd quiet and he says how many of you think I could put a man in the wheelbarrow and push him back and forth over the falls on that rope and the crowd just goes nuts they're so excited of course you can do it you're the best this is great this is amazing everybody is so excited to see this great thing he's going to do and then when it it finally gets quiet he says I just need a volunteer who's going to get in the wheelbarrow and the crowd falls deathly silent and they begin to walk away because every one of them wanted to see a great show but none of them really wanted to risk being in the show I did that with my faith for a lot of years. I wanted to see God do great things in my life. I didn't want to make any changes. I wanted to keep sinning and being selfish and have God somehow work out a way for my life to change and be awesome. I wanted to see God work miracles in the lives of my unsaved friends. But I didn't want to be actually the guy who brought up church. We have got to risk getting in the show if we want to see a great show. We have got to become invested in sharing our faith if we want our faith to mean something for us and for other people. We need to stop getting ready and we need to start SHARING